If you're having problems hearing me, uh, just because I'm losing my voice a little bit, so we're going to do my best to speak as loud as I can and not to have you all miss any anything in this. That's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this particular chapter, so uh, we're going to look at the first four verses tonight, And uh, <clears throat> but I want to read the first two verses and then I'd like to pray before we before we begin. So the first two verses of Isaiah 66 say, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we come now to this last chapter of Isaiah, realizing, Lord, that... uh, as much as we have learned about things to come, we have a lot to learn as well about things that are, knowing the things that are to come, and how we are to live and how we are to be in these last days. And I pray, Father, that uh, you'll help us to understand everything in your word from your perspective because it is indeed knowing Lord your heart and your wisdom and your reasons uh, will help us Lord to not only walk in a manner worthy of your calling but uh, will keep us from walking in our own ways or in our own minds or doing things in our own uh, thoughts rather than in the ways that you would have us to do them. And so let this, Lord, be a a time of preparation for the remainder of this whole book, which we will take time to, to look at. May this establish our hearts and our minds upon your greatness And that, I, I, I think greatness is, is just a word that is, is it, it just doesn't say enough about how awesome you really are. So help us in understanding these things through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've now come to the climax of this great book of Isaiah. I was noticing that uh, it's just been over a couple of years now that we've spent time in this book. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah has been able to look through the threshold of time to see future events, both near and far to him and near and far to Israel as well. Not to mention how it affects us as the church. 
In our study of this prophecy, which we did begin over two years ago, I've personally been amazed at the awesome contrasts that we have seen in the character of God. What we could label as the paradoxes of His divine nature and His sovereign action. Take, for example, the gap between us and God being as far as the heavens are from the earth. Infinitesimal, as the word could be stated. We saw this in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet, we see how warmly and personally He invites those who are thirsty to drink freely from the fountain of His grace. In the very same chapter, Isaiah 55, verse 1, when He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know, this also reminds me of, of Jesus' invitation in John 7:37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, we, we read this in verse 22, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent. To dwell in. You see this picture, you know, of God sitting above all of His creation, and yet we're looked at as grasshoppers in that particular thought. But in the very same chapter, we read in verses 28 and 29, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? And notice this, His understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29, He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, He increases strength. So, so notice, you see, these tremendous contrasts between that sovereign nature of God and yet His love and His mercy and His grace. Of course, in Isaiah 53, we read of God's servant who will be beaten and killed for those who have gone astray, and yet will also be glorified forever. So now we come to Isaiah 66, and again, we see these great contrasts in God's character. Even going back to chapter 1, when we were hit with the contempt that the Lord felt with, uh, with Israel's unfaithfulness, and yet there was also the hope that the stain of sin would be washed clean, chapter 66 begins with the warning of judgment, but also contains a promise of God's continued goodness, a great hope for the future of Israel and all of God's people. And so in verses 1 and 2 it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Consider what earth is. As, uh, you know, we ourselves so small and tiny in in, in, in context to the greatness of God but 
we look at this world, you know, if you've ever been in a plane and we look down, uh, you know, upon, upon the land, you know, especially, I'm not talking about just a little, you know, Piper Cub, I'm talking about, you know, jet, and you're, you know, overlooking, you know, uh, the world, you think, well, that's, this, this world is great, and, you know, we look at the pictures of the shuttle going off into, into space, and we get a picture of the moon, we get a picture of some, somewhat of the galaxy in which we're in, and yet all of that is nothing. In comparison to the greatness of God, we think this earth is so big, and to God it's only a footstool. And so he says, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. As the Lord continues to answer that prayer of the remnant, those cries of of the people who had realized that as a nation, Israel had backslidden away from the Lord and, and needed His mercy, as well as pleading with the Lord to execute judgment on their enemies, God, in effect, reintroduces Himself to His people, putting things back into proper perspective. What is that perspective? That God is great. When I say great, I mean that God is big, that God is awesome. And man needs to respond to Him accordingly. Folks, I don't even think that people in the church understand that today, in a great sense. God is awesome over and above all of His creation, bigger than whatever we could consider to be great as far as the vastness of this universe. We need to respond to that. Not if it's it's some joke around here. There is not much that anyone can understand until it is understood that the Lord God is enthroned in heaven and that earth is still under His command. So how great is our God? How great is His name? Those are two lines from a song we used to sing years ago. How great is our God? How great is His name? He rolled back the waters of the mighty Red Sea. And He said, I'll never leave you. Put your trust in Me. How great is our God? If God Himself said that He measures the universe with the span of His hand, if you remember in Isaiah 40, verse 12, then how can anyone build a house for God to dwell in? With this first verse of chapter 66... The Lord is speaking directly to those who want to serve God on their own terms. People are always trying to limit God to their own religious rituals and their own constructions. They just don't realize their own insignificance before God's throne. God has to say, heaven is my throne, folks. 
What does that say to you? If, if the heaven that we can't even see with, with the strongest telescopes that we could even muster, then how great is the heaven where God reigns? Think of it this way. It is God who provides rest for His people, isn't it? God says, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It is God who gives rest. It is God who provides people His rest. Not the other way around. This is the reason why He asked the question, where is the place of my rest? The Lord asked. Where's the place of my rest? You're wanting to build a place for me as if to say, Here, Lord, rest here. You've been doing a lot over the many years here. Get a, get a, take a break. I think you'll understand that a little further when we go on. I want you to turn it back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And I want you to look at the first verse. And we might begin to answer this question. But God asks, where is the place of my rest? Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. The train of His robe, the train of His majesty. You get a picture of some great king, you know, that carries a robe. And you know, usually the robes of great kings or queens or whatever would have a train, you know, that, that would just kind of be dragged along as he majestically walks into his, into his uh, kingly throne room. And we're told here, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up in the train, the very train of his robe. Is the train greater than the king himself? But even if the king's train is filling the whole temple, what is that saying? I want you to see the irony here. The people seek to build a house for God, a place for God to rest. But as, as we see in verse 2 of our text, it says He's made all things. Hey, everything that's created, I've already made. Moreover, the vision in Isaiah 6 makes the concept appear laughable that we could ever build any place that God could rest in. This house of God, the temple, is completely filled by merely the train of God's robe. The end of that robe that drags along the ground. That is the size and the majesty of God, and yet we who are but dust, we don't listen to Him. That's part of the point that He's trying to make here. As awesome as God is, as great as He is, as big as He is, if we can even use that kind of term for God, we don't listen to Him. Instead, we try to fit Him into our own rituals. We try to fit Him into our own buildings without ever realizing the amusing futility of it all. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he honestly recognized the fact. He got it right. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. He understood it, didn't he? Solomon understood. I'm building this temple, but when, you, when it comes right down to it, not even the heavens can contain you. You see, people may want to build God something. But what can they build that is worthy of God? What can we build that is worthy of God? You know, down through the ages, especially the church age, and, you know, there, there, was, uh, there was a tremendous focus, not so much anymore today, but in times past there was a tremendous focus in the architecture of churches to build cathedrals, to build churches that would in some way honor God. The saddest thing about all of that is while many of these churches were built in, in, in a tremendous beauty of the, of the times in which they were built, to this day, how many of those truly standing today are still dedicated to the glory of the Lord? I was in England not too many years ago and, and, and got a chance to visit some of these churches that were built back in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Beautiful structures, but those churches weren't being even used as churches any longer. And the ones that were, were holding on to very small congregations of people. I mean, what, what can we build that is worthy of God? People boast of all that they have given to the Lord, and yet He is saying they've only given back to Him with that which He, you know, was already His. Since he created it all in the first place. He made it all. And you're saying you're giving this to me? It's mine anyway. <laughs> and then let me tell you this. God is not impressed with our religious practices. God is not impressed with religious ritual for the sake of religious ritual. So then what does God want from his people? What does he want from us? He's not looking for big, beautiful monuments made with our hands. Verse 2 of our text tells us this. For all those things made, uh, my hand is made and all those things exist. As a little. But notice this. But on this one out will I look. On this one will I look. On this one, in other words, I, it has all of my attention. On this one, I am focused upon on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. You know, that kind of destroys the thought of a lot of people today who say that we in the church, that we who are Christians and believers, we should be rich. I mean, it should, it should just be pouring out of our pockets. And if it isn't, Something's wrong with our faith. Something's wrong with us. Maybe we're just in sin all the time. We should be in perfect health. We should have, you know, health and wealth and you name it. But I kind of look at it as they have health and wealth and stealth. Because then they have to hide all of their imperfections. 
Because if anybody sees their imperfections, something's wrong with their faith. God says, this is on whom I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. The Lord is looking for a person who is poor in spirit, recognizing they can't do anything about their sinful condition. Can any of you save yourself? Did any of you save yourselves? Did any of you help God in any way to save yourself? He is looking for a person who is contrite in spirit, humble before Him. And He's looking for a person who trembles at His Word. Having a godly fear of what He has said and then applying it to their lives. This is one reason, the only reason of course, as we receive the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord was in fact presenting us the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. But this is one reason why Jesus delivered the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. It was to make clear our response to God's greatness. Look at Matthew 5, verses 3-12. through 12. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor, or the pure, I should say, in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when you look at this passage, when you look at this list, as it were, you realize there isn't much room for pride. Pride is taken out of the way in the very first statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pride is out the window. There's no pride to stand on. Everything comes back to what God gives us when we recognize our destitution before Him. Consider how many people, or I should say consider how often people come before the Lord with what they have for Him in a proud spirit. Look, Lord, look at what I did. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm accomplishing. Well, not really me, Lord, it's you, but I'm bringing it. You see. And then they twist and they change and they bend the Word of God to fit their own preconceived ideas instead of just allowing God to speak for Himself. It's interesting that the word contrite in our text literally means lame or disabled. The contrite, the one who acknowledges the disability. One aware of the damage fashioned by sin and the personal inability to stand upright before God. 
That is what contrite means. To know that we're sinners. And we cannot save ourselves. And we cannot forgive ourselves in the sense of, you know, having ourselves cleanse us from these things. I like what Charles Spurgeon once wrote and preached about this passage. He said, they tremble, when it talks about trembling at God's word, he says they tremble at the searching power of God's word. You see, we begin to realize our contriteness because God's word has lit itself up into our lives and it allows us to see where we're at before God. With that in mind, Spurgeon says this, they tremble at the searching power of God's word. Do you never come into this place? And he's speaking about his church. He says, do you never come into this place and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that thy word may search me and try me that I may not be deceived. Certain people must always have sweets and comforts. But God's wise children do not wish for these in undue measure. And then he says, daily bread we ask for, not daily sugar. I like that. Daily bread we ask for, not daily sugar. But just that very thought that he challenges his congregation. He says, do you never come into this place and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that thy word may search me and try me that I may not be deceived. What is one of the greatest deceptions in in the lives of people in the church today? The greatest deception is that we're okay when we're not. That we're okay when we're not. Isn't it interesting that for the most part, listen carefully, the 9-11 attack on our nation has become a faded memory, if a memory at all, in the collective conscience of our country. But when that date rolls around, as it will in a couple of months, there is suddenly a renewed awareness of the dangers to our land. But where is that awareness the rest of the year? Man gets so caught up in daily living and satisfying self that he's just forgotten that there is an enemy within the gates already. We could blame the politicians. We could blame the news media. But the church needs to awaken to its responsibility as well. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He said, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Remember I said that one of the greatest deceptions is that we're okay when we're not. There's a tremendous undercurrent of fear in our country, as well as in the church. And and this is a struggle... For, for pastors that we say we trust in the Lord but we really don't there's this undercurrent of fear in our country in the church 
due to the threat of disaster. But why is that fear so great? Could it be that many who have professed faith in God have cast it aside to chase after their own way? Could it be that they have left their first love? Think of 1 John 4.18 for just a moment. Can we truly say that we understand this because we know it to be true in our hearts? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Just consider this. Where was the church when prayer was removed from the public schools in the 1960s and replaced with anarchy? How many churchgoers today sit in front of their TVs, mesmerized by the indecent entertainment pumped into their homes, filled with all manner of deviancy, occultism, and crime without standing against it in some way? Prayer meetings and Bible studies are the least attended events in churches, but sporting events can be packed, a day of work is not missed, and people can stand in line for hours if not days to get the latest hit movie tickets. Why am I bringing this up? Because man can build huge houses of worship and deny God entrance at the door simply because they want to worship Him their own way and not His way. They create a little box for God to live in called a sanctuary and they say to Him, that's where you can live, Lord, and we will come by to visit once in a while when we get the chance. Folks, our God is bigger than this place. And we treat Him like He's little. Christian, do you know that the very place that He wants to dwell is in your heart? And He's big enough to do it? In all of us? And not just us in this room, but in all of the church, in all of the true body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He tells us in another section of Scripture, you were bought with a price. Jesus in John 14, verses 15 through 18, He says, If you love Me, keep My commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. For He dwells with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. This same God, who says that heaven is His throne, and the earth is His footstool, says, on this one will I look. On this one, 
who is poor and has a contrite heart. I think the church as a whole needs to repent before God and quit playing games. I was watching, I have a, a channel on my TV called God TV. And sometimes I wonder why they named it that because they paid no respect to the Lord in some of those shows that I was watching. There was one preacher who was just outright blasphemous in his actions, making everything seem as if, you know, revival is here because people were laughing uncontrollably or just because he could tell them to fall over, you know. It's unimpressive to God. I didn't see one Bible in the whole time I was watching this. I was so burdened in what I saw. Getting back to our text, the Lord now answers these empty religious practices. Notice verses 3 and 4. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. I'll explain this in a moment. Sounds weird. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. This passage depicts how God feels about religion without righteousness. Religion without righteousness. The people thought they were pleasing God. Yet their hearts were wrong and their sacrifice is an abomination before the Lord. They were going through the motions of worship without having a heart for God. Now listen, they were going through this. They were killing the bull, not the man. But were they? They were sacrificing lambs. But were they really breaking dogs' necks? They were offering grain offerings. But it might as well have been the blood of swines. Do you start to get an understanding here? Going through the motions of worship without having a heart for God. That is the understanding. That is the key here. Isaiah 29, verse 13. We studied this a while back. If you'll notice, we're going back and touching a lot of places that we've already been. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near, with, uh, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, 
And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Because their hearts were far from God, their offerings were as unclean things to the Lord. That's the understanding of verse 3. Because their hearts were far from God, their offerings were as unclean things to the Lord. They might as well, they might as well have been slaying the man. Might as well have been breaking the dog's neck. I'll explain that in a moment. They might as well have been offering swine's blood. They might as well have been lighting incense or burning incense before the Lord. Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says the people were not sacrificing animals. They were murdering them. Because their hearts were not right. Please remember this. If you, if you write anything down, write this down. I'll say it slow and I'll repeat it a couple of times. So I don't want you to miss this. The heart of the worshiper determines the value of the offering. The heart of the worshiper determines the value of the offering. The heart of the worshiper determines the value of the offering. You see, God detests the sacrifice of the wicked. He detests it. He abhors it. He loathes it. Buy yourself a thesaurus. <laughs> you learn a lot of words about what God detests. Isaiah 1 verse 11. Let's go all the way back to Isaiah 1. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Why? Because he saw their hearts. Proverbs 15 verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You see? Same concept here. People say, I pray. I pray to God all the time. I do a lot of other things too. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know. Don't pray. If you're going to live this way, don't pray because that prayer becomes an abomination. The only prayer I do encourage you to pray if you're living in that kind of sin is, God, forgive me, cleanse me, help me to get away from this life. But I hear people all the time, they say, well, you know, you, you, Evangelical Christians are too narrow-minded. We live this particular kind of lifestyle and we go to church too. We're not saying all of these things to judge. We're saying them because God is God and His Word is true and we need to bow to His Word. We can't do it unless we have His Spirit to teach us 
to humble us, to strengthen us, and to help us to live and to walk worthy of, of the Lord. These people that God is talking about, they were empty hearted, not broken hearted. There's a big difference. They were empty hearted, not broken hearted. Everything that God loathes, they, the pagans did in, the, in, in sacrifice. Everything that God hates, the pagans did it. What did they do? They sacrificed their own children. What did the Israelites do when they began to adopt the, uh, the, 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 the religious practices of the pagans? They started killing their own children. What was that? The slaying of men. They broke the dog's necks. What was that? That was actually a pagan practice of sacrificing dogs to the pagan gods. The Israelites picked up on it and did it, but just the very fact that they did it was breaking the law because it was an unclean thing to do. The offering of pig's blood, the blessing of an idol, and now his own people sacrifice in some cases the same way, but most importantly, they did so with the same empty-heartedness. I don't know if you've ever watched some of these programs on TV, you know, that show us world religions in other places, you know, the, the Buddhists, you know, when they go to their temples and they burn all kinds of incense and they bring fruit to some little, you know, fat little Buddha idol, you know, or whatever, and, and they stand there and they do all kinds of stuff and they got beads, you know, wonder where that came from type of thing, and, and they're counting beads and they're, they're ringing bells and they're doing all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I watch some of this sometimes and I look and I think, anybody could do that. And in many cases they just were doing it to do it and then they go off and do whatever they wanted to do. The ritualism was empty. For the Israelites, the, the ritualism added to their sin. It didn't take it away. They felt good about doing their own thing, even though it displeased God. They delighted in what they were doing, but God did not receive it pure and simple. In verse 4, we are given a sobering reminder of what God will do on the earth during the Great Tribulation. Look at verse 4. So will I choose their delusions. And bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. Now you've got to understand something. He's speaking about the children of Israel, who have forsaken their God. He's speaking about those in pagan practice. The Apostle Paul described it this way. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and following. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, 
and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see, there is a consequence for all those who we have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with and they reject it wholeheartedly. There's a consequence coming. And they have been duped by this unrighteous deception. It's, it, it's going on around us. The, right, the unrighteous deception is already here. The humanism of man, you know, the, the, the philosophy of, of secularism, the philosophy of humanism. And then, of course, just add, add to that all of the various world religions and all. And notice what it says in verse 11, And for this reason, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You know, it's interesting, it says they should believe the lie. You know where that goes back to? Not only goes back to the, the, the more recent deceptions that they were receiving and, and that people today are receiving, that goes all the way back to the garden. And the lie really was the serpent saying to Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say that? And that's what people are saying today. Even theologians, even people who have gone to cemetery, I mean seminary. Because those are real cemeteries, man, where they're dead and they don't even believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But somehow they, 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 you know, they gain their degrees enough to go around saying, I don't know what I believe. That's stupid to me. Either you believe or you don't. But if you tread that way with God's word, brother, may God have mercy on you. And maybe I shouldn't even call him brother. The word delusions, by the way, in the Isaiah text, the word delusions there in verse 4. So I will choose their delusions. That word means punishments or harsh treatment. The word delusion in 2 Thessalonians is defined as deceit or error. Now, if man seeks his own delusions, then the Lord will send them delusions. In other words, be careful what you ask for, you may just get it. If man seeks his own delusions as he's messing with the things of this world, guess what? It comes to you not only as some error, it comes as punishment. You see the tie between the delusion of the Old Testament and, the, and, and of the New Testament. I want you to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There will be a day when that focus will be completely and totally upon all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth or, or who hold back the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Folks, think about this for a moment. What other creature on this planet can think, react, talk, speak, communicate as we do, 
who the Bible says is made in the image of God. No other creature. I don't care what they say about, you know, Flipper speaking. You know, or King Kong, you know, or whatever. See, that's part of the delusion. Things have been made clear. We are not a part of the animal kingdom. We oftentimes act like we are. And too often we look at a monkey and say, Oh, it's my dad. Because the scientists say so. Well, if you look at verse 21, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. A majority of college professors today, especially in the sciences and in the philosophies, are fools. Because they deny the existence of God. And there's no way, if you look around this world, to believe that man or chance or nothingness created something out of nothing. That's more foolish. I just got a book in California recently called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. You need a lot of faith to be an atheist, to believe all that garbage. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Man wants to be an animal. Therefore, God also gave them up. Notice, He gives them up to the delusion. He gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Second time Paul says this, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you go on in verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Here He gives them up to delusion. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. What is this describing? Do I have to say? Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what does God do the third time? He gives them over now to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Be careful what you ask for. You may just get it. I want you to read the rest of this yourselves later because there's a lot more to go and I want to use this last few minutes to close this out. What is the best way that we can keep from being given over to delusion? What is the best way that we can keep from being given over to delusion? Simply by answering the Lord when He calls. Simply by answering the Lord when He calls. Go back to verse 4. Notice what it says. Simply. 
So will I choose their delusions, bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes. What is the best way we can keep from being given over to delusion? Simply by answering the Lord when He calls. By hearing Him when He speaks and responding to Him. It's that simple. Just choose God's ways. I heard a wonderful story not long ago. And I hear it a lot because it comes from a recording of a sermon that had actually been preached in the early 1900s. And the manuscript of that message was, was read for our time to hear. But uh, the, the sermon itself was, was really about doing what we're called to do now and not waiting because tomorrow may be too late. And the, the, the minister in giving this particular message was speaking of a man, and it was a true story of, of a man who had gone to Atlantic City. This is, again, in the early 1900s, so it lets you know, you know that, uh, how things have been always and it never changes. But there he was in Atlantic City for business, but he found himself kind of in a compromising situation, compromising place. But he was a Christian. And God spoke to his heart. And said to him, in effect, I can't give you every word, but in effect what he said was, if you act now upon these feelings and emotions, this will take you and pull you down for a long, long time. But if you act now and run from this temptation, you will have conquered it for your life, the remainder of your life. And it struck him so hard that immediately he stood and he left he went to pray thank God for the strength that God gave him not to yield to the temptation the temptation would have taken him down and he would have been a slave to it the rest of his life instead he acted And he became master, in essence, by the power of the Spirit over this temptation. Folks, there is a greater storm that is approaching than any that has caused great havoc in our country in the past few weeks. But this storm is one that brings tremendous spiritual consequences to the undiscerning. It's a spiritual storm. It's a spiritual wave of deception and delusion. And we need to be watchful. And we need to be awake and we need to be aware. First Peter 4 verses 7 through 11 says, But the end of all things 
is at hand. That's enough for me. (laughs) The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I find it very hard for people to be serious and watchful in their prayers when they're having so-called revival meetings and everybody's laughing, growling, yelling, screaming, rolling in the aisles, falling over because someone puts it in their mind that because they have the power themselves. I find it very hard for them to be serious and watchful. Above all things, verse 8, it says, Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received the gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And notice this, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And if Peter hasn't said enough, then we need to look at what 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 says. Because there he says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's hard to remember that we have brothers and sisters that are suffering for the sake of Christ in other parts of the world if we're so consumed with ourselves and our health and our wealth and whether it's prospering us. Being sober and being vigilant, it isn't just a matter of you know, putting the, the bottle down. Being sober is being sober of mind and heart. Being vigilant means I can't really go to sleep spiritually. The devil walks about like a roaring lion. Now see, if we stand on God's Word, if we listen to what the Lord says, if we love God's Word and stay in God's Word. I tell you this, when you look at that roaring lion, you realize Jesus has already knocked His teeth out. And He did it on the cross. And then He accentuated it when He rose from the dead. But we need to trust in the Lord. And we need to stay sober and vigilant and serious and watchful in our prayers. Well, that's just the introduction to Isaiah 66. Let's pray.